Now you can go ahead and take your seat as you do. So I, I don't know about you guys. Uh, uh, I want to express my appreciation for staff, for everyone, and I also want to express appreciation for our worship team this weekend. Hasn't it been great? Ian and the whole team, Cleo, Nils, Dave, we just appreciate you guys leading us uh, in each of these sessions. It's been great to be together. It's been great to uh, connect and to meet many of you. Hopefully you've had a uh, great weekend and this Labor Day weekend that we can uh, enjoy together. And as uh, we finish out, um, I've had a few have asked if I'd tell Elvis stories uh, from working at Graceland. Uh, when I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, I won't tell a lot of stories, but I did. First job I had out of high school, I was a tour guide at Elvis Presley's house. And this was back in the 80s. Uh, the, the house had just opened for tours. In fact, the uh, family wasn't sure that anybody would want to come on the tour, and uh, they opened it the first year and had uh, 500,000 people come through the first year. It rivaled the White House. It would go back and forth between what was the most toured house at that time. Uh, the White House had to stop tours uh, post 9-11. Graceland's still going, by the way, so it's still going strong with it. But, uh, you know, it was a great job. It's probably the best job. I, I tell people I think it prepared me for ministry more than seminary in a lot of ways because you're standing in front of thousands of people talking a day. And telling about Elvis's house and his room and all the different parts of it. And it was, you know, a lot of fun. You'd meet different celebrities that would come through, especially artists. All these bands that would come through. I mean, John Denver and Chicago and the Beastie Boys and, I mean, all over. I spent one afternoon for about an hour with Paul Simon. He just kind of, he came through on a normal tour. And I look over and I'm, I'm like staring at the guy and I'm going, that's Paul Simon, but why would he be with a normal tour? And he had a baseball hat on. And finally, I went over and introduced myself. And uh, he said, yeah, I've got this album coming out called Graceland. And I thought, you know, I'm traveling through this part of the country. I ought, I ought to at least go through there. Really nice guy and, and talked with it. Uh, but there was about 100 of us that were college students that were all tour guides. And if you go now, you get the, the audio tours. They don't use live people. And, and if you hear some of our stories, you understand why they got rid of us. Because... I mean, we're, we're college students. We would get bored. And so our goal the whole day was to figure out ways to mess with other people giving tours. And we had this bet jar. We'd bet each other all the time who would come up with the most outlandish Elvis story and you'd include it in your tour. And so if you toured during that time, you may have heard things about Elvis that aren't actually true, part of what we were doing. But I had one friend, Tommy and I, we would bet each other all the time. He was always ramping it up. And so one day, you know, when you go now, everything's behind glass pretty much. But when we were doing, this was early 80s, they had just started. We're giving the tours in the middle of all of Elvis's outfits and the mannequins and everything. In fact, one winter day, I may have tried on a few of Elvis's jumpsuits, but that's off the record with it. But Tommy, he, he's like, hey, okay, I'll bet you, you won't give a tour wearing Elvis's shoes. I said, oh, sure, I, I'm up for that one. And so we both went over and we put our shoes there. And I took a pair of penny loafers. And, you know, so they looked pretty normal. Tommy took his bowling shoes. And so for the next hour, we started giving tours. And I'm walking around in Elvis's shoes. People are taking pictures of my shoes, by the way, thinking they were Elvis's. And, and we kept going all day. And I get to the end of the day, and now Tommy wants to ramp it up a little bit. I've got this group in front of me, and I'm doing this timeline of Elvis's life. And I look, and behind the group, now he has put on this, this sombrero 
And this poncho, Elvis did this uh, Western called Charos from one of his movies. And so Tommy's wearing it. And he's behind the group doing the full three amigos. He keeps going like that with it, trying to get me to laugh. And I look up, and, and one of our bosses is walking behind Tommy. And this is this guy, one of our managers. He loved Elvis. It was almost like he was on sacred ground. And, and I watch his face as he recognizes what Tommy's wearing, and just like this horror. And I see him dragging Tommy off. And as soon as the shift is over, we all get this uh, memorandum of, come to the break room, emergency tour guide meeting. And we go up there, and Tommy's standing there with our boss. And he said, uh, Tommy was caught wearing the memorabilia. And he's suspended for a week. And then the manager looks at us, he says, from this moment forward, if you're caught touching an item, you're fired. Now, I'm standing in Elvis's shoes at that moment. And I'm like, I, I, do I just keep these from now on and just hope nobody notices? And so hopefully at, at the end of the meeting, it kind of broke up enough and I made my way back toward the trophy room and everything, switched out the shoes with anybody, without anybody knowing it. But uh, we, we would, I mean, over and over again, the opportunities with it. It was interesting to me, this, this intersection of culture and celebrity and all that happened there. And as you look at Elvis's life, there's, there's probably few people more successful than Elvis Presley. Honestly, when you, movies and music and that, that here you are, he died in 1977. And about a half a million of people a year still go through his house. 100,000 people would show up on the evening of his death just to be able to walk by his grave and light a candle. I mean, it was almost cult-like in it. And I look at it on every metric of success, from money to women to fame to celebrity to, to just professional success, one of the most successful guys on the planet. And I, I'm just telling you, end of his life, he's absolutely miserable. And you think of, of this sad picture of a guy who literally his heart exploded from taking too many drugs because he's alone upstairs in his bathroom. I contrast that. I mean, that picture always stands out to me of everything that is supposed to bring you happiness in life. And put the, the contrast of, of Elvis in that setting and the Apostle Paul, who by every metric of worldly success, not a very successful guy. Doesn't have any money to his name. Uh, not real popular in most places. By the time you get to the book of Philippians, he's in prison, waiting to go on trial to see if he's going to live. And yet the attitude between the two different guys, the perspective, is just night and day. You got one guy that despite everything that would be success, he can't put enough drugs in his body to stay happy. And you got another guy who looks at it and he goes, hey, let me tell you, I rejoice always. I find joy in every circumstance. In fact, if you turn to Philippians 4, Paul describes an attitude and describes a, a sense of peace 
that I think the world desperately longs for like never before. In fact, as we, we finish out this weekend, I, I can't think of a better topic to talk about. I, think, I can't think of anything that we would need more because uh, since 1977, it's only gotten more stressful. It's only gotten harder. In, in fact, I, I put in your notes, th- there's a needed promise in this passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, a needed promise for an anxious age because the level of anxiety is at an all-time high. The level of anxiety in our world is at an all-time high. And, and it's interesting, if you track it, even pre-COVID, the level of anxiety that was going up. And you know the country that outstrips all the other countries in the world, the developed world when it comes to anxiety? The U.S. What many people would say the most blessed country in the world is the most anxious. And I was just tracking all the different types of anxiety. Unbelievable health anxiety. And this is pre-COVID. Health is one of the issues people stress out about the most. Financial anxiety. Information anxiety, youth anxiety, performance anxiety, body image anxiety, parenting anxiety, especially for young parents, anxiety is at an all-time high. They have more information at their fingertips than ever before, which I think is part of the problem. Parenting by Google is a great way to be anxious all the time. And, And so they always live with this, I could be doing more. We have separation anxiety. And I'm not talking about when you drop your kids off at the nursery. I'm talking about separation anxiety from our phones. You ever experienced that? We could experience it right now. If I asked everybody to pass your phones forward, and I'm going to hold them for the rest of the time, you'd be feeling this. I'm not so sure about that. I had it the other day. I was driving to the hardware store. I was going to Home Depot. And I got about halfway there, and I realized, I don't have my phone. And for a split second, I thought, i got to turn around and go home and get my phone. And then I went, wait a second, Tim. You used to live every day of your life without a phone. You can't go to the hardware store? We've gotten so connected around it. And if you look at the levels of youth anxiety, debilitating anxiety, anxiety disorder, something's wrong. I mean, with 38% of young girls ages 13 to 17 would identify they have some anxiety disorder. About 26% of boys in that age. I look at it and go, something's wrong with our culture. And then in Philippians 4, you can see on the screen, Paul makes a promise in this passage. Look with me, the verse in it. Or maybe it's just in your notes there. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. And I love, he goes, it defies understanding. So he's not talking about a natural peace. He's talking about something supernatural only God can do. Literally stands guard over your heart and over your mind. But isn't that something that you just go, yes, I want that. In fact, in verse 9, look how he puts it as well. You can see in your notes, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he says, you get the peace of God because it comes from the God of peace. And here's the point you see in your notes. We can experience the peace of God because we have a relationship with the God of peace. 
That's the key here. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm real clear right at the beginning on this. Because you can turn on TED Talks on how to be calmer or how to deal with anxiety. And you can find a lot of self-help out there. And they can be helpful in ways in meditation and all that. But only a relationship with the God of peace can provide the peace of God. And, and I say that at the beginning because you may be here and you don't have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're still exploring it. Maybe you haven't taken that step. And, and sometimes a passage like this can be more frustrating because you can kind of go out and go, okay, I'll try to go apply these things. The reality, when, when Paul said that he says it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. There's not even a way for me to explain it to you fully, what it is to have that kind of peace in Christ, to experience it in him. And it can only come through a relationship with him. And so I, I would encourage you, if you haven't taken that step, if you haven't embraced all that Christ gives not only that forgiveness but then all that comes with it like the kind of peace that we're talking about I don't know what's keeping you from that my prayer is before you would leave here today you'd either take that step you'd receive what Christ would give you or at the very least you'd talk to somebody about why you're struggling with it You'd be honest enough with someone to go, man, here's where I'm having issues with it. And it may be really an intellectual honesty. Maybe you're not ready. I, I respect that part of it. The last thing, though, I'd want you to do is leave here and just not deal with it because of the peace that's available to us. So how do we experience this peace of God? I, I think if you look at it, Philippians 4, 1 through 9 it's a, it's a total package together. We'll sometimes just pull verses out of it. But Paul's describing it, and I would say this is the peace plan. For those of us who have a relationship with Christ, how could we experience this peace more? And if you go through it, look, look how Paul tells us to do it. The first thing he says is develop a resilient faith. You need to develop a resilient faith. You need to develop the kind of faith that sticks the kind of faith that stands. Look at verse 1 in it. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Those two words there, that stand firm, if you read through the book of Philippians, he'll say that phrase over and over. He'll just call them to it again and again. And part of it is he recognizes this is a church where the culture around them doesn't agree with Christianity. The culture around them doesn't hold the same moral stand. Culture around them, frankly, looks at the church as really strange, as antagonistic to the government, as the outliers. And so, so Paul goes, I know what that kind of stress is. I know what that does to people. And so again and again, he tells them, hey, you guys, you got to stand firm together. You got to stand on your faith together. And I would encourage you, especially when it comes to this issue of peace, one of the greatest ways to get peace in your life is instead of living every day in this kind of wavering faith, whether I really believe that or not, whether I'm really going to do that or not, it's when you're willing to just go, you know what, I have rooted my life on the truth that's been revealed in God's Word. 
I've rooted my life on the truth of who Christ is. I'm going to let this be my standard. I'm going to let God's word be my guide. I'm going to let the doctrine that, that the church has studied out of this, let it be my foundation. And I'm just going to stand firm on that instead of every day making a decision based on what culture did today or what people think today. And I say that because there's a movement that's happening right now. You've seen over the last several years, especially with young people, where people describe it as I'm deconstructing my faith. And there's parts of it I understand, especially I remember when, when in college age years, those early years, there was a part of it where I went back to, to this faith I'd grown up in and go, do I really believe this? Do I trust this? And I had to make it my own. But, but you're watching this unraveling movement. And I'm talking about the kids who grew up in the church. I'm not just talking about culture out there. Of kids who grew up in the church and everything starts deconstructing. And deconstructing the moral fabric of the faith, and deconstructing the doctrinal fabric of the faith, and deconstructing, and, and you'll find, and it's not just kids, pastors are doing it, and the movement gets really, really far. And there's a part of it, I, I've talked to some of them, they go, you know, I just felt the tension of it, and so it just brought relief when I finally let go of some of the things I held on to in Christianity. And I always say to them, there's a big difference between relief and the peace of Christ. And I would encourage you. It's one of the things I love about coming to Mount Hermon. Anytime I come to Mount Hermon, you get the joy, and it happens at dinner, it happens at lunch. I just get to meet families and couples, and especially older couples who've walked with Jesus for years. And you hear their stories, and you hear their lives, and you see what Christ has done, and the peace that comes from couples from individuals from leaders of their families who've just determined at an early age this is my foundation this is my truth I've rooted my life here and I may have ups and downs and culture may go different ways but there's a peace that comes with knowing this is the foundation of my life and I would encourage you if you're early in that journey or you're early with your family stand firm you don't have to live every day kind of debating and going with every wind of doctrine. You know the truth, and you stand firm in it. And it'll bring peace. Second thing you see in it, reconcile your relationships with other believers. Reconcile your relationship with other believers. Look at verse 2 and 3. Paul said, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Euodia and Syntyche are the names of two women in the Philippi church. Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, he's asking another leader in the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So he, he describes it, he says, there's a group of us. We, we helped plant this church. These two women were leaders in the church. We've carried the gospel together. We've been co-laborers together. But somewhere along the way, and it's interesting, Euodia, her name literally means sweet-smelling. And Syntyche means friendly. Well, somewhere along the way, Euodia is not so sweet and Syntyche is not so friendly. And they have a disagreement. Now, notice in this, Paul doesn't take sides. 
Paul doesn't say, hey, y'all need to correct Yodia because Syntyche's right. He didn't take sides about it. Notice as well, it's obviously not a doctrinal issue. If it was a doctrinal issue, man, Paul would be the first to correct it. Like, no, that is wrong. And teach this. So whatever this disagreement about, it's not doctrinally based, and he's not saying whether one's right or one's wrong. But they've gotten crossways. And Paul says, we need to deal with it. And you need to help them deal with it. You know, as I, I read this, it, it's always amazing to me a little bit that Paul actually names names. I mean, can you imagine? I, I got to imagine every so often in heaven when Paul runs past, you know, Yodia and Syntyche, they look at him and said, did you have to use our names? I mean, in the Bible for all time? And yet, it's important to him enough because he goes, this is going to have destructive value in the church, in their lives. And so you need to deal with it. And here, here's the reality. I would say over the last two years in particular, there's a lot of Christians who need to reconcile with other Christians. And it's not usually over a doctrinal issue. And it's not necessarily once right or wrong. Notice in that, in your notes, as you deal with it, you choose to unify around who God is and what he says. Paul says he calls these women to agree where? In the Lord. They may not agree in their opinion, but they can agree in the Lord. They can agree in who Christ is. They can agree in who, what God's done. They can agree in the importance of the unity of the body. And so he calls them. He says, hey, you agree around that. And I would say the same. Maybe if you need to reconcile with someone, instead of starting with what you disagree about, what if you came to the table and said, hey, why don't we start with what we agree about in Christ, about who we are in Christ? about who God is and what he's done in our life. And let that be our point of unity instead of this disagreement point being the center point in our relationship. Now, as you do that, second thing I'd say is seek outside counsel or mediation when needed. Paul's writing, he said, these two are not going to get there on their own. So I need you true companion. I need you leader in the church. I need Clement. I need others. You've got to step forward and help these two with it. And I'd encourage you, if you're at a place you go, man, we can't reconcile, we need some help in it, get help. Go talk to a pastor. Go talk to a counselor. Man, if you're at a place in your marriage where you just keep hitting the same walls again, go get some help. There's no shame in that. There's no failure in getting the help. And sometimes you just need that third voice. You need that other person there to help you go, hey, let us talk this through so that we can agree in the Lord. Uh, third thing I'd say in this is recognize that what unites us is more important than what divides us. Paul said, we, we, we labored together in Christ. In other words, man, we planted this church together. The cause we are about is so important. He said, their names are together in the book of life. Do you realize what that means? It, it means that because they've accepted Christ, their names are written there. One day when they step into eternity, that book of life, when your name is there, you're welcome to that. You're a part of the family of God. And, and it's interesting to me, Jesus is going to welcome into eternity. We're going to spend life in eternity together, and we're going to enjoy life together, but we can't do it here now. And I know what you're thinking. You might be going, yeah, but when we get to eternity, Jesus is going to change them so that they're not such a jerk. And then I will get along with them. 
Yeah, Jesus is going to change you too. And realize that everything we do here is preparation for life there. Guys, look at me and, and, and hear me. Some of you, you don't have peace because you need to be reconciled to somebody. And some relationships have frayed this year. Or maybe it's a long-term hurt. And I'm not saying this is easy. And it's not always attainable. Reconciliation is a two-way street. But where it depends on you. You know, in, in my life, one of the more difficult relationships was one of my older brothers, Todd. Todd was always a hard person, super successful. Um, phenomenal tech world, made tons of money until alcoholism caught up with him. And then he lost his job. And his marriage had fallen apart and he had two little girls. He had custody. And I watched his descent into alcoholism and he just became a harder person. To the point that my wife and I, we had to step in and take his girls in. Our oldest two daughters were initially his, nie- his daughters. They were nieces. And we just took him in as respite care. And, and then, you know, he was so hard to deal with, he would never listen to anything. And I'd get phone calls. I'd have to show up in a city where he, he had holed up in a hotel and been drinking for a couple weeks. And then you got to go try to settle up with the hotel and try to get him cleaned up. I finally moved him to Little Rock where we were just to keep him close. And my mom was bipolar, and so they kind of had a codependent relationship going on. So it, it just got crazier and crazier. It was just such a hard season. And I've got his daughters, and we're raising him. And he's always stayed so hard. Until finally he was in the hospital. I remember one day we're in the hospital, and he would go in and out of sometimes paranoia. He was always accusing me of taking his money. I'm like, what money? All I have is bills from you. <laughs> and my mom was always in codependency, just taking care of him all the time. And I got tired of that too. And one day he's just laying in the bed and I'm up there visiting. And she's kind of doting on him and everything. And she said, do you want something to eat? And he said, oh, I don't like this food. He said, I, I, I want a ham sandwich and some Gatorade. And she turned to me immediately and she said, you're going to get your brother ham sandwich and Gatorade. And just in my spirit, I went, no, I'm not. I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with all this. Ingratitude and everything. And I, I left that day and I was just mad and I was like, God, this is a one-way street relationship. And I'll take his girls, and I'll love them as our own, and I'll deal with this, but I, I just can't do this anymore. The next day, I was headed up to the hospital to see him. And in the back of my mind, God was like, uh, you going to get that ham sandwich and Gatorade? And I was like, no. No, I am not. And I stopped to get gas, and I was at the pump, and my card wouldn't work at the pump. I had to go inside to pay. So I go inside and I get in line and waiting to go pay and I look over and literally right when I turn there's this whole shelf of prepared ham sandwiches. You know what was on the shelf right below it? Gatorade. And I did literally, I was like, seriously God? Seriously? And I sat there for a moment and I'm not doing it. I'm not 
doing it, and I'm like, okay, this is stupid. So I bought the sandwich of the Gatorade, and I, and I said, he won't eat it. And I went up to the hospital, and I put it on the table right next to him. And after a minute or two, he's kind of, it's like he came out of that stupor. Every so often, his eyes would clear. And he looked over and saw the sandwich. And he starts eating it and drinking the Gatorade. And then for a moment, just like he was back again. And he looked at me and he goes, hey, I just want to thank you. I said, well, it's not this, it's just a sandwich. He goes, no, no. Thank you for everything. Thank you for my girls. I just want to tell you, I really appreciate it. And then like a moment later, he went back to sleep. And that night, about two in the morning, I got a phone call from the hospital. And he passed away in his sleep that night. And, and I couldn't help but think, God, you're so good to me. That you wouldn't let me just stay in my anger and bitterness. The last conversation I ever had with my brother was him actually expressing appreciation. Guys, in a year of a pandemic, you would think if there was ever a time we would be pulling together more, it'd be now. But I know so many people, their relationships have gotten frayed this year over things that aren't going to matter. Reconcile. While you have time, reconcile with the people you love. It may be the thing that's robbing your peace the most right now are those relationships. Look at the third thing Paul says in it. He says, consciously choose joy in the Lord in any and every circumstance. This is a, a little verse. We know it. We sing it. Boy, it's hard. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why does Paul repeat it? Because it's hard to live it. And, and when he says rejoice, he's not saying be happy in every circumstance. In fact, you see in your notes, it does not mean we're denying the real emotions of the circumstance. Rejoice does not mean be happy all the time. Doesn't mean that we walk around deluded. Doesn't mean that we're happy, clappy Christians and everything's great. If you read through scripture, the honesty of the emotions in the Bible, the honesties of the emotions in the Psalms, a guy like David, who you feel the highs and lows, the honesty of the emotions of Christ's life, that Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. Jesus knew what it was like. He was called a man of sorrows. He wasn't called Mr. Happy Clappy. That's not what joy means. But joy is making a choice in my emotions. So in my sad days, I'm choosing joy. In my hard day, I'm choosing joy. 
In my good day, I'm choosing joy. Because joy is that recognition of not what the circumstances are doing, but what God's doing and what Christ is doing in me and through me. You see there, we choose to find joy in who God is and what he's doing. And if this year's taught us anything, this last two years, we can't control the circumstances. And we don't know the days I think, invariably when I think, oh, this is going to be a good good day today, something will happen that day. And sometimes the days I dread the most turn out to be the days that I go, oh, this was so pleasant. I can't predict. I can't control. I don't know what's going to happen in circumstances. It's just taught me everything changes so much so quickly all the time. You know the one thing that doesn't change in my life? Jesus. God. And I love that Scripture makes a promise and he always lives it. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the consistency of who he is, in the love of what he's done, I can choose joy today no matter what happens in this. And it's amazing. When I have that mindset, it's amazing the peace that comes. Because I stop deciding every day that I'm going to evaluate whether it's good or bad based on what happened that day. I stop living, trying to live my life, evaluating based on what I can't control, and I turn my life to the one that I don't have to control. The one who's actually in control. Changes everything. With that, number four. Number four, be reasonable and calm with everyone. Be reasonable and calm with everyone. Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, some translations translate it gentleness or calm. It, it's, you're supposed to have a kind of spirit that when you interact with people and somebody sees you coming, they would go, oh, there's Tim. He's a reasonable guy. He's going to be calm about this. They may not agree with you. They, they may not look at what you're doing, but they know the approach that you're always going to bring. Now, let me just random survey here. When people in our culture talk about Christians today, is this the first word they use about us? Oh, that reasonable group. Oh, they're always calm. And I know as I say that, you go, yeah, but Tim, there's things going out in the world today, and in their place for anger, in their place for prophetic anger, in their place for righteous indignation, in their place that, that when the outrage with that. I mean, even Jesus, Jesus cleared the temple with a whip. And I go, absolutely. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. There are things that should outrage us. But I encourage you, read back through the gospel again. And you read through each of the gospels. Yes, Jesus cleared the temple on that day, but I never see him walking around with a whip every day. He's not walking around all the time ready to whip that thing out, is he? It had a place. And the reason it stands out so much to us, it was pretty exceptional in his life and ministry. Let me just encourage some of you, as you think about the mental, emotional buttons in your mind, of all the different emotions in your mind, Some of you, you need to take your finger off the outrage button. You stay outraged all the time. 
And social media, outrage. Latest news, outrage. Latest politics, outrage. Outrage, outrage. There are things that are outrageous. But if everything makes us outrage, we're not living this out. And let's face it, we live in California. There's something to outrage you all the time if you want to live that way. There really is. But Paul looks at it and he, he's talking to a church in Philippi and frankly their setting was a lot harder than ours. And he goes, hey, here's how you, sh- you guys should be known. People look at you, they're reasonable. They're calm. With that as well, number five, consistently release anxiety through prayer. Consistently release. And the reason I say release um, the, the verse here, read with me in verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a great verse, but when he says do not be anxious about anything, he's not saying that you have to train your body that you never respond to the stressors of life. Anxiety is a normal response when high stress comes. What he's talking about, though, is you don't hold on to that anxiety. You don't allow that anxiety, that stress, to turn into long-term anxiety, which turns into worry, which turns into this anxious life that you live in all the time. And so the way that you release that anxiety, and it's in scriptures, the number one way we release it is prayer. So in an age where we are as anxious as we've ever been, Shouldn't it also be true that Christians should probably be praying more like never before? Because it's our release. Now, as you pray, look how he tells how to pray, though. One, you pray, be humble. You actually release control to God. He says, pray with prayer and supplication. Supplication is literally, I'm laying my plans before you. Supplication, I'm, I'm laying my life before you. Those are far different prayers than I'll pray sometimes. Here's how I find myself praying at times. Where I come to God, and I've already figured out the game plan. And I go, okay, God, this is what needs to happen. And this is what needs to happen in the church, and this is what happened in their life. I've already figured out what my kids need to do, and I've figured out this. And so I'm basically praying by giving God marching orders. All right, here's the game plan. Let's go. Execute. Go. Go. And you know what happens? I actually get more anxious because I get impatient with God. It's like, God, I've already figured it out. Come on. Come on. Come on. And I'm anxious. Paul says, don't pray like that. Come and just go, you know what? You're actually in control. I'm releasing this to you. Now, as you do that, though, you need to be direct. Tell God what you actually want. Tell him what you want. He says, lay your request before him. Don't pray so general. Sometimes I'll be praying with someone, and they're so general, I don't even really know what they want. And they do it out of respect for God. It's kind of like, dear Lord, whatever thou wilt, and in thy way, and if you would move as thou wilt. And at some point, I'm like, what, what, what exactly are you asking there? Paul says, no, lay your request before him. Tell God the desires of your heart. And the reason to get specific, and here's the interesting thing, it's not because God doesn't know what they are. You're never going to tell God what you want. And he goes, that's what you wanted? But you know what you will find? As you lay those requests before him, you discover the desires of your heart. And you discover where they really don't align with what God's doing. And he uses 
the avenue of prayer to align those together. Be humble. Be specific. And the third thing, be thankful. Remember all that God is doing. He says you always pray with thanksgiving. And, and I see this as a parent. How many of you as parents here, have you ever had the experience when your kids ask for something, but they do so with an attitude of expectation? Like you owe it to me? And what's the normal response? It's like, I do not want to give this to you at all. But flip it around. You ever had your kids ask for something? And they're so grateful. And they're so thankful. That everything in you wells up that you're like, oh, I want to move that much more on your behalf. Paul says pray like that. So you release that anxiety through prayer. Now, can I just pause for just one moment? Because a verse like this is so comforting for many. And for some, this verse can be depressing. Because you're dealing with debilitating anxiety. You're, you're dealing with issues. Some it's anxiety. Some it's suicidal thoughts. Some it's depression. And sometimes you hear this, and, and we can apply it with a simplistic way. Well, if you just pray more, it's going to be okay. And I know people who dearly love Jesus, and they probably pray more than I've ever prayed in my life, and they're still struggling with it. Because it's not just a spiritual issue. It's also a physical issue. Sometimes it's a chemical issue. Sometimes there's deep woundedness out of it. And so, so could we destigmatize in the church a little bit behavioral health, mental health? Could we treat it the same way that we treat physical health? You would never tell someone who's struggling with cancer to not go to the doctor. You'd go, oh man, you need chemotherapy. You need medicine. You need help. And you need prayers. The same is true in behavioral health, guys. And, and you may need medicine. You may need drugs to help your brain do what your brain's not naturally doing. You may need a, a psychiatrist or a therapist. And I don't view those things as, oh, an either or. I go, isn't it great that because we've been created in the image of God, as humans, we can develop healing and medicine? Why do we put this stigma on it? And it's not that the medicine's going to do it for you. That's one of the big things. If somebody says, no, shouldn't I just trust Jesus in it? Here's how I would put it. Imagine we're all called to run the race. And we're all running the race toward Jesus. But I look over and somebody right next to me who's running the race, they're down in a pit. And they're running as hard as they can. In fact, they're running harder than me. But they can't get anywhere because they're stuck. And I could stand over the pit and go, run, run. Or I could live out what Galatians 6 says, to bear one another's burdens. And you reach in and you go, hey, can, can I help you? Can you get the help you need? Could we do this together? So maybe it's medically, maybe it's a doctor, maybe it's a psychiatrist. I don't care what it is. It's not that that is ever going to run the race for you, but it could get you out of the pit enough that you can start running again. And I would just encourage you, if you're here and you're stuck, our enemy does not play fair. 
He wants to, you to think it's a you problem or a spiritual problem or you don't love Jesus enough or that Jesus doesn't love you either. And none of those things are true. You can live out these verses, but we're not all starting in the same place. And there's nothing wrong in Christ in getting help and talking to someone. Finish out with the last couple of things Paul tells us to do. One, number six, protect and direct your thoughts to guard what is good and true and lovely. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And again, we've highlighted this weekend, one of the reasons you've loved this weekend so much, you've had an opportunity to actually live out these verses, to actually have the time to think on what is good and pure and lovely. How do you carve out that time as you go home? And then the final verse here, it's one of my favorites here. I'll just close with this. Put into practice what you've seen and learned from mature believers. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Notice what he says there. And this one's key. And I can't think of a better verse to end on before you go home. He said, these things that you've heard and you've seen and you've learned all of which are great. I'm so glad you learned it. Now go practice it. Now go do it. Then the God of peace will be with you. One of my greatest fears for those of us, especially in Bible churches and teaching churches, we love learning. We love seeing. We love hearing. But we almost make it all about the learning and not actually practicing it out there. It'd be like if you were here to learn how to play piano. Could you imagine? And sometimes I picture church in this week. If you imagine a church service every week, instead of it being about teaching the Bible, it was about how to learn how to play the piano. And every week you came, and I'm up here, and I've got a piano, and I show you the piano, and I put slides on here, and I tell you about deep compositions of the piano, and I show you how to put your fingers on the piano, and every so often I'll play pieces on the piano. And you sit there, and you go, oh, I love hearing you play the piano. And then when we finish, you come up to me and go, you know, I've never thought about that with that music composition. Oh, I'm going to remember the way that you did that. And we did that every week. And you went home and you never actually played the piano. Wouldn't that be the dumbest way to learn how to play the piano? And I'll just be honest, sometimes as a pastor I get afraid that you come here because you want to learn and you should learn. But you don't take it out there. Guys, this is your piano. Through the power of the Spirit, you have the ability. The world is our concert hall. And Christ wants to make beautiful music through you and in you. And I can't think of anything that we would take out, any piece that we would do that would be greater for the world today than people who went out and said, let me show you how I am practicing what it looks like to have the peace of Christ in me. A peace beyond understanding. And when I practice, I'm not perfect. Notice he says, don't go out and be perfect. And he says, don't go out and practice it. Because in God's grace, 
You can fail. But it's yours to live, not just to learn. And so we've learned a lot this weekend. I'll take home a lot of things that Gary taught. And hopefully in the sessions you take home, not only here with it, but let's not just leave it here. Let's go live it out there to a world that desperately needs to see it and hear it and experience it through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the peace of God that passes understanding. Lord, I I pray, would we be people who know what it means for it to guard our hearts and our minds and to be able to share that truth in a world that needs to hear it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, thank you.